You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hey there, Blazers fans. Welcome to the Blazer Focus Podcast. I'm Aaron Fentress, Blazers writer for the Oregonian and OregonLive.com. Coming at you with a second episode this week. Monday night, big win over the Lakers. Wednesday night, Blazers get rocked 128 to 105. Yes, it was pretty ugly. Guys, I don't think it means anything in the grand scheme of things with this team. I'm going to offer some perspective about that loss, which I know is disappointing for some Blazers fans, given how well they played against the Lakers. Uh, But mostly in this episode, we're going to look ahead to the series this weekend against the Warriors. A two-game set, Friday night, Saturday night, I have as my special guest, Connor Letourneau, who is the beat writer covering the Warriors for the San Francisco Chronicle. He used to work at the Oregonian back in the day. I'm going to have him on to talk about the state of the Warriors. Are they a playoff contender? Is Steph Curry still elite? We'll get into all that later in the show. But first, let's address this loss to the Clippers. The fact that Portland lost at the Clippers is not a big deal. The fact that they got blown out and the defense looked horrid again is the headline here. However, let's remember a couple of things. Number one, This is a Clippers team that's really good. I mean, they have a lot of good shooters, a lot of different ways they can beat you with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. They're pretty darn deep. And when an NBA team of that caliber, I mean, this is a top three team in the West for sure. When they get hot, they just get hot. These things just happen. We're seeing a ton of blowouts in the league this year. And a lot of that is due to the fact that so many teams now have so many guys who can hit the three that if three or four guys on one team just get it rolling and you struggle at all, boom, you're down 15. (laughs) That's just what's happening around the league. Now look, look at the Clippers. They lost by 51 the other night to Dallas. You know, then they come back and they beat Minnesota and then they handled the Blazers. Well, Dallas after rocking the Clippers comes home and loses by 21. I believe it was, Oh no, 19 to Charlotte. Charlotte, who actually is looking pretty decent right now, but Charlotte hasn't been great. Dallas is supposed to be a Western Conference playoff team this year. They're off to a slow start. The bottom line is they should be better than the Hornets, but the Hornets shot 44% from three, and Dallas shot 26, I think it was, and Luka Doncic was uh, 0 for 5 from three-point range for 12 points, and Lillard today, and the Blazers' loss was 0 for 8 from long distance. He only scored 20 points because he made 14 Free throws. My point here is that these things are just going to happen. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It, it rarely makes sense. It, it's a marathon, not a sprint. They lost. 
It doesn't matter by how much, uh, you know, if they played them again tomorrow, Lillard could score 40 and George and Kawhi could combine for 28 on 20% shooting and the Blazers could win. I mean, that's just how the NBA works. But if you do have a concern, it's that even though the Clippers were shooting well, the Blazers did not look as crisp as sharp. They didn't seem like they were communicating as well as they did Monday night against the Blazers. I think that's a fair assessment. And the Blazers pretty much, you know, cop to that. Lillard and McCollum said that they did a lot of things uh, inadequately that allowed the Clippers to thrive. But that at the end of the day, yeah, they, they were red hot and th- those things are going to happen. And then with Lillard playing as badly as he did, boom, next, you know, you're down 30 in the, in the third quarter. Uh, but moving forward, you know, if I would have told you before that series, or not series, before that trip to LA, that they would split, I think most people would be ecstatic with that. They're, they're now two and two. All four games they've played are against legitimate uh, Western Conference playoff teams. Granted, Houston was depleted a little bit, but still, they had James Harden there. But Utah, the Clippers, Lakers—that's a—that's a tough start to a season. Now they have the Warriors. It's going to be interesting to see what the Warriors bring. They've gotten off to a slow start. Their two losses are out in Milwaukee and at uh, the Brooklyn Nets, two of the best teams in the East. So who are they really? We don't know. We'll maybe find out a little bit this weekend because uh, they're going to host the Blazers for two games. So yes. If you watched that game, you were disappointed on Wednesday night. But at the end of the day, they got the split down in L.A. And that's what matters most, because right now this is looking like a pretty solid basketball team that's still fixing its defense. Uh, They've shown some flashes here and there that they could have turned their corner. Uh, I wouldn't throw all that into the into the garbage, so to speak, because of one bad night against a red hot Clippers team. All right, let's uh, get right to it right now. Connor Laterno. You know, I'm going to chat about these Warriors. Uh, you know, what I want you to, to take out of this is just learning more about this team that the Blazers are going to face for two games. Uh, sort of where Connor sees them as a franchise, what their strengths are, what their deficiencies are. It might give you an idea of uh, sort of how the Blazers are going to do down there. Because I think it's going to be pretty fascinating. I, I, I do not believe they lose both games, the Blazers. Like, I would be shocked if they come back two and four. I think worst case scenario, they're three and three, and I think they have a chance to, to win both. Uh, we'll see how the supporting cast around Curry can, can play. Draymond Green is supposed to be back, but he hasn't played very much. So how rusty is he going to be? Finally, this will be the first time since the 2019 Western Conference Finals that we will have seen Lillard go up against Curry. We all know that from a Portland perspective, there's a little bit of a rivalry there, but I'm not sure that rivalry goes the other direction from the Warriors' perspective. I'll ask Connor about that very issue. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Connor Letourneau. All right, now I'm very excited to welcome in Connor Letourneau, who covers the Golden State Warriors for the San Francisco Chronicle. He used to work at the Oregonian. You covered the Oregon State Beavers. Was that one or two years? Two years, two years. And I believe you and I had just, I think we might have, in the night. I think we might have overlapped for like a week. Something um, like that. I think I, I think we overlapped when I was covering high schools for a little while, for like a few I, weeks. And then I was promoted to Oregon State. And then like the week I was promoted to Oregon State, you got the job at NBC Bay Area. And then we see, yeah, we, we, we kind of worked together for like a week, right? 
But it's cool to see you back at the O. Yeah, it's bizarre being back and covering the Blazers. I've never covered the NBA full time until now, but it's been a lot of fun. Uh, so let me real quickly, how how has the transition been for you? It's been several years now, obviously a long time, but how are you loving the NBA? And you you jumped in on a team that right before right before it became a juggernaut, right? Yeah, I well, actually, they were already kind of a juggernaut in the sense that they had won uh, a title, made two finals. I, I was, I was, I came on the beat in uh, July 2016. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Literally a month after they they signed Kevin Durant, so oh, well, the timing yeah. was pretty crazy. <laughs> um, and he was like my first NBA beat, uh, so I was I felt very fortunate to to have that sort of timing, but. Uh, yeah, no, it's been it's been an amazing experience. Um, I've gotten to cover, you know, a couple title teams, a couple, you know, several finals teams. Um, and, you know, I've always been an NBA guy growing up in Portland, uh, you know, had had season tickets to the Blazers, um, read Jason Quick every day and John Canzano, which is honestly uh, a big reason why I wanted to be an NBA writer, because I just loved that. Uh, I loved how they approached it. I loved how they got at the off the court stories. You know, I remember reading like stories about Brandon Roy and his family and being like, this is so cool. I want to, I want to do this. And so here I am um, trying awesome. to do kind of similar things on my beat now. Um, and I'm on my fifth year now. It's crazy how wow. time flies. But hey, where'd you go to high school in Oregon? I, I went to Jesuit. Jesuit. Okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah. So you you covered some of the glory years, and then last year, not so glorious. Uh, they're trying to make a run back into the playoffs this season, but then Clay Thompson gets injured again. First, tell me what was it like in that area when Clay Thompson got injured for a second year in a row, and everyone knew he was going to be done. Oh, complete devastation! I mean, he's just beloved by the fan base and it's not it's not just because of who he is as a player and he's you know one of the best two-way players in the league I think probably the second best shooter in NBA history behind Steph statistically at least and then um, defensively is an all-defensive team caliber perimeter defender um, definitely their best perimeter defender so there's that but um, he also just very much fits the ethos of the franchise he's you know just such a likable dude he's no frills, kind of doesn't care about the fame, really genuine, um, has no ego. Um, and people really identify with that. So, if, and he's been with the franchise obviously since he was drafted. And so there's kind of like a, a kinship there, you know, he feels like one of their own. And so to see him go from sitting out all of last season with the torn ACL to, you know, being on the verge of coming back, to suffering a torn Achilles, you know, on draft day, just two weeks, less than two weeks before the start of training camp, it was completely devastating for the entire franchise. Um, I do think he'll come back strong next season. I think if anyone is capable of of enduring this type of rehab and, and coming back at full strength, it's him. But it's yeah, it's I mean, and you, you're already seeing the effect it's having on the team. I mean, there, I, I said right after it happened that, uh, you know, in my opinion, it's not even a question. He's the second most important player to the franchise behind Steph and that um, he's actually kind of the glue to hold everything together. And right. I think I think you're seeing that right now. They're just without him they're They look discombobulated 
on both sides of the ball. I mean, they won their last two games, but they're just they're just not the same team. It was Chicago and Detroit. Do they count? Does that count? <laughs> right, exactly. And they barely beat them. You know, right. they came back from double digit deficits in both games. So right, but no, they went out and got Uber to basically replace Clay. Wiggins has been playing pretty solidly based on the box scores I've seen. Do they feel like those two over the course of time can can round into shape with Curry? Because Curry didn't play much with Wiggins last year um, to where they can actually get to the point where they can be a threat. I mean, they're not going to be Clay Thompson and Durant level threat, but to be a, a playoff team, a, a maybe, you know, fifth, sixth seed somewhere in there. Um, I think that there was – uh, optimism uh, after they got Ubre that if everything went right, um, that they could maybe get some get home court advantage in the playoffs, maybe sneak in as a four seed. Um, there was no one seriously thought they could actually contend for a title. I mean, right. that's just how big of. I mean, I, I think even with a healthy Clay, it would have been a long shot for them to contend with the title. Their bench isn't great, um, you know, and I think they're still very much feeling the void of. Uh, not having Sean Livingston and, and Andre Wadala and some of those mm-hmm. key role guys, even like David West. I mean, those guys were a lot more important than I think people fully understood at the time. And I think you're seeing it now uh, because they have not been able to replace them. Um, yeah. And, well, they were uh, adults. They were adult professional players who in their 10 to 15, 16 minutes, or in Iguodala's case, 28 minutes, knew how to play the game like grown men as opposed to a bunch of little you know, I don't want to be too disrespectful, but people like Ubre and Wiggins are still learning. They're like fledgling Colts, still yeah. trying to learn their way in the league. Whereas when you have guys off the bench who are adults who know how to do their job, that that's so huge uh, for a championship level team. Yeah, and the Warriors system, as you know, is is uh, a very much a read and react system, and so it's mm-hmm. it, it requires a, a certain level of basketball IQ. It requires right. a certain level of feel and understanding and a and a synergy with the other guys you're playing with. And uh, it's it's been hard for them to bring in new guys and just be able to build that. You're seeing how special that that dynastic run was in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It was um, it really was magical, and I think um, it, it's easy. It was easy at the time to kind of take it for granted because they were winning at such a high level for such a long time. But you look back on it now, and it's like literally everything kind of fell into place perfectly. Right. Um, and that, that doesn't happen very often. Right. And so right. just in life. Right. So, um, you know, if people thought they could bring in, you know, the, the Nick Youngs of the world and the, some of these other guys and, <laughs> Nick and Young. They, they could kind of fill the void and, and they, they haven't. Um, right. So See, Nick Young is a great example. Like Nick Young can fill it up. He can score when he's hot, he's hot. Right. But he's the classic example of the guy who's going to make 10 or 15 mental errors, and they might even be little, small, that no one else would notice except for the team that slow down the offense or you know stop the ball or there's like, why did you shoot that? Or two more passes and we get a layup. That kind of, and he just messes those types of things up. Am, am I wrong? No, you're not. You're not wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, Wiggins and Oubre are both guys, I wouldn't necessarily say they're like, Nick Young in certain ways, but they are uh, inconsistent. Um, and I think, you know, especially being new to the system there, there's been a major learning curve there. And, and actually as great as Steph is, there is a huge learning curve to playing alongside Steph uh, because Steph is such a unique player in terms of right. how he goes about things. And he do, is a player that requires, 
requires a lot of flow and timing is everything with him because he's not this like physically dominant athlete. Um, so he need it's all about rhythm and flow with him and, and building that is harder than people realize. And so, um, you know, Ubre's really struggled his first few games. He, he played better uh, yesterday in Detroit, um, but he was absolutely awful, especially offensively in his first three games. Andrew Wiggins um, is starting to round into form, played really well in Detroit, um, but they need both of those guys to be lockdown defenders which I think is a huge ask uh, given that they've never proven that they can be that in their career. I think the biggest thing with this team, the biggest reason I was skeptical that they can do much of anything after clay went down was Steve Kerr kept saying, we need a top 10 defense. We need a top 10 defense, which is, which he's not wrong. They, they do statistically to contend in a loaded Western conference, you need a top 10 defense, but they had the fifth worst defense in the league last season. They, are still without Clay Thompson, um, and then they they've added no proven defenders. Uh, so how how are you just suddenly supposed to go from the fifth fifth worst defense to the, a top ten defense? Right. I don't understand <laughs> how that happens. Just because you say you're going to right. you try hard, that's not really how it works. So I was skeptical, and I think that's kind of playing itself out. Like they're just not very good defensively. So I thought Wiggins was supposed to be a pretty good defender. Was that overblown? Um, Wiggins actually wasn't a great defender in Minnesota. Um, he's one of those guys who has all the physical tools to be a good defender. And I think he showed flashes of it, um, in Minnesota, but there was at one point toward the end of his tenure in Minnesota, 538.com actually did a piece about how he was the worst defender in the entire league because he, because he, he had a penchant for ball watching and, and, uh, lazy closeouts and all that. Um, and I think he's just a guy who needs good coaching you know, to, to, to try hard on a consistent basis. And I don't think you really had that in Minnesota where they were, were having a lot of turnover and that sort of thing. And it's kind of a dysfunctional franchise. And I think coming to the Warriors in a lot of ways has been a good thing for him um, because he's in a, he's with a franchise that truly believes in him and and makes him feel good about himself, which is, which is important. Um, But uh, he's, He's when in his twelve game sample size with the Warriors last season, he showed definitely glimpses of being a good defender, um, but he's still very inconsistent, you know. And that's always been his thing. So, what's the deal with Draymond Green? Um, in terms of, I keep seeing all these reports reports that they're open to trading him. Uh, do you think that's a thing? And is he he's banged up right now, right? Yeah, he's got a foot issue, but he actually yeah. should come back. Tomorrow, uh, Friday against Portland. Friday against Portland. Is okay. the, is the hope, yeah. So he's he actually sat out. He sat out their offseason mini camp because remember they didn't play in the bubble, so they actually had an offseason right. mini camp. He sat out that because he was having a baby. Then he uh, missed all of training camp or all of the preseason games, and then all of, all of training camp because of a positive coronavirus test. And then toward the end of the preseason, when he started to scrimmage again, he got uh, a foot issue, so he's mm-hmm. missed past four games. And, you know, this is a guy who I think is desperate to silence his doubters a little bit. Obviously he did not play well last season. Um, and I think a large part of that was just, he didn't have good, a good supporting cast around him. And he's a guy right. who needs greatness around him to be at his best. And he also needs stakes and he had no stakes last season. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause he's a guy who has gotten to where he is by, you know, 
outplaying people and just having this unyielding will to win, but he he has a hard time getting that up when when it's a completely meaningless uh, game, which is understandable. Um, so I'm really curious to see, like, that's the biggest thing I want to see Friday is like, what's he look like? Does he look he- healthy? Does he look, is his win back? Cause conditioning I know has been an issue for him at times. Um, and is he able to like start exercising the memory of, uh, of what went on last season? When he comes back, he does provide defense. He does provide leadership. Um, it seems like he would be someone who could maybe help get Wiggins and Ubre to sort of fall in line in that regard. Do you think he can have that kind of impact or is that, that's basically what you want to see for yourself? Yeah. 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 I think, I think the most important thing for him is defensively. Can he organize them? Um, Because he really is a good on-court leader in that respect, especially defensively. Um, And they need that, you know, they've been out of position. They've been slow on rotations and all that sort of thing. So he's going to need to be kind of a, another coach on the floor especially with the young guys and then offensively they need uh help kind of getting into their getting into their reads and 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 getting back to that flow that we talked about a little bit ago um and he's probably their best probably their best facilitator um and you know he's he definitely initiates the offense a decent amount so he's gonna he's gonna need to like help them get back to what they're good at but i'm a little skeptical just because you know they're the guys that he's going to be playing with. A lot of them still don't really know what they're doing. And so I'm not sure <laughs> he's going to be able to flat play. out. <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean that in like a overly critical way. It's just like, you know, they, they only had a couple weeks of right, right. And training camp and, you know, it's a pretty complex system and it's not like these guys are dumb or anything. They just, they just have, it takes time. Oh yeah. Yeah. It yeah. takes time. And so, and also, they're just genuinely not as talented as the teams that Draymond's used to playing with. So, okay. <laughs> um, it's it's it, I'm not convinced that he's going to be able to come in and just be this all star all star caliber guy. So, could they trade him? Do you think this is a, a real thing that? These yeah, so I think what with? you're referencing is the Chris Haynes thing. Chris Haynes yeah. uh, went on a podcast, <clears throat> and I listened to it, and it was a lot of hypotheticals. You know, it was a lot of. Like if this happens and this happens, they could do this. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you mean like 90% of trade rumors. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there a league, is there a league that more it indulges itself with hypothetical trade rumors than more so than the NBA? It's almost like people just want to imagine what different combinations would be like. So they conjure up these, these, and then, then you have the trade machines, which people can mess around with. Right. And then it seems like these these things become rumors, and they're not rumors; they're just discussions amongst the media and the fans. <laughs> right? Yeah, and like I, I honestly don't. From what I've heard talking to people, I don't think Draymond actually has that great of trade value. I mean, he's kind of, in some ways, he's kind of a niche guy in the sense yeah. that he's like an elite role player, but he needs a certain set of stars around him to be. Yeah that all-star caliber guy that he was during the Warriors dynasty. And so, and given his contract, which is enormous, I don't, I don't think that a lot of teams would be willing to give up much in a potential trade for him. Um, and uh, Haynes on that podcast sounded like he was more confident that, that there were certain teams out there that would be given willing to give up a lot, but I'm just not sure about that personally, just talking to people in the league and, you know, understanding how he's viewed, throughout the league. I, I, I'm not sure that the Warriors could get 
a ton for him, especially given his contract situation. Yeah, I agree. There there were some fans on Twitter like last night, I think, saying, oh, we would trade him to Portland for CJ McCollum. And I'm like, what? Portland would never give up McCollum for Draymond Green. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No. Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I can understand that a little bit just because Portland has struggled so much defensively over the years, but uh, I wouldn't do that if I was Portland, honestly. Yeah. So let me take you back to real quick to – so I railed against the Durant era. I thought it was cheesy that Durant went to Golden State. He had the Warriors on the ropes up three games to one. You covered that series, right? Had them up three games to one. He had bad games in five and six. He had solid game in seven. They lose in game seven at Golden State. And then he joins the team he had on the ropes, and they become pretty much unbeatable, which I thought was just you know stacking the deck like the deck has never been stacked before. What were your feelings during that era with him, and what was it like covering that team? Yeah, so I actually got on literally right after they signed Durant. Um, I was in the Bay Area. I was actually covering Cal uh, when that all went down with that, the series with Thunder um, and him oh, okay. officially signing with the Warriors. But um, I obviously covered all the aftermath of that. And um, I'll never forget his first game back in Oklahoma City was actually probably the craziest game I've ever covered. And that's <laughs> multiple finals runs. Um, but uh yeah, I look it, covering Kevin Durant was pr- probably the most interesting reporting experience I've ever had in my entire professional life. Uh, Kevin Durant is such a unique and fascinating human being to me. Um, he's, I think, at his core, a good person, but he uh, has so many kind of personal issues. He's he has so many insecurities and uh, that he still deals with to this day and. And, um, you know, I think for him, it's all about legacy. It's all about uh, wanting to go down as the greatest player of his generation. And right. it's all about ego and legacy for him. And he went to the Warriors believing that if he could win a title or two and be a finals MVP, that he would be considered better than LeBron and his legacy <laughs> would be secured. And, um the reality is that was never going to happen. Like he could have won a title every single year and he was never going to be considered better than LeBron. And so what happened was, you know, his, his first year with them, he comes out, plays great, uh, has that big moment in the finals where he hits that dagger three over LeBron. Uh, They win the title. He's the finals MVP. And he thinks I'm going to be considered the greatest player of my generation. And then that didn't happen. I think it was incredibly disillusioning for him. And then after that, things started to go downhill um, where he started to um, get really frustrated with the attention that Steph was getting, Clay was getting. Uh, it bothered him that, you know, Steve seemed to value Steph more, which of course Steve values yeah. Steph more. I mean, Steph is the franchise. And 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 KD should have, in my opinion, KD should have understood that. And I think he might have, abstractly understood that on a certain level, but it's just his ego really got in the way. And, um, you know, he couldn't handle the fact that like he wasn't being adored the way he felt like he should be. Um, Who was advising this guy? Like, like had Michael, like had Michael Jordan, when, when they lost to the Pistons in 89 or 90, 90, they lost seven games to the Pistons in the East finals. Had he left the bulls to go to the Pistons? to win championships, 
he wouldn't have been adored. He'd have been vilified. And that's exactly what Durant essentially did. And he got pretty much what anyone should expect. He joined a 73 win team, which means he could have set out the entire season, right? And it's just joined the team in the finals. And they would have been there because the only team that was a competition for them in the West was the Thunder, which he destroyed by leaving them. So how did he expect to win the title that way and think that that was going to mean he was all of a sudden greater than we already knew he was? Ego's a fascinating thing, isn't it? <laughs> Ego's a hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes people don't see things clearly. They can't get out of their own way a little bit. Um, look, and KD is one of the greatest players of his generation. He's amazing. Maybe the second greatest player of his generation, but he's not LeBron. Um, and uh, yeah, it, but it was it was really fascinating covering, especially the end of that three year run. Um, because things just got really toxic in the locker room and uh, it was really uncomfortable <laughs> at times. Uh, I mean, he went from coming in and like being really happy to be there to by the end, just n- not talking to anyone. And to this day, I don't really think he talks with anyone in the franchise on a regular basis at all. Um, and, you know, he's, he's, uh, he never really felt like an actual member of the team. You know what I mean? Like it always felt like the Warriors and Kevin Durant. Exactly. He never felt like he really became a fabric of what they're about. Because he wasn't. He wasn't. (laughs) And also his playing style too. I mean, he the the reason why it's so nice to have Kevin Durant is because he's the ultimate bailout, especially offensively. I mean, he like everything can go wrong in a possession, and you just give the ball to Kevin Durant. He hits a fadeaway eighteen footer, and you're good to go. Um, which, you know, but the Warriors don't play like that. You know, the Warriors, when they're at their, their best, you know, were removing the ball and there was always some tension there because like when, when Kevin Durant was having his best games, the Warriors weren't as a team at their best. And, uh, I think there was tension there because he's like, I'm Kevin Durant. Like, why are people taking issue with how I play? I'm Kevin Durant, one of the greatest scorers of all time. And it's like, well, you know, we'll, the, the Warriors want to have well over 30 assists a game, and they only had 20 tonight, and it's because you kept dominating the ball, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there was always that, like, back and forth. Was some of that why he and Draymond got into it? Uh, I mean, he and Draymond got into it because, um, you know, Draymond is all about loyalty and uh, – he re- Draymond really didn't respect how Kevin went about handling his pen- his impending free agency, you know. And and Draymond's a pretty intuitive person, and I think could tell already that. <clears throat> I mean, entering that last season, that Katie was definitely on his way out. And so, when in that moment in that Clippers game early in that final season, when uh, Katie got mad at Draymond. Uh, I'm sure you've gotten in arguments with people. We all have in our lives where you get in an argument with someone about a specific thing. And then it conflates into this bigger thing where you just start bringing up things from the past. Right. Like, oh, yeah. Well, you're ugly. And you did this thing five years ago and I hate you. And it's like, that's basically what happened where he was like there. Katie was mad at him about not passing in the ball in the, a critical situation. And then Draymond goes to, Oh yeah, well you're, we don't even need you. And you know, uh, you're not even you're not even really here for us, and you're already checked out. And it's like, dude, that's not even what we're talking about. But uh, <laughs> obviously, it was it was there were issues that were under the surface that right. 
boil to the surface. So, I mean, honestly, it was like, there's so much drama. Like it was fascinating to cover. Um, and their relationship was never the same. Uh, before that, they were actually like best friends on the team. Like, like they hung out a lot. They went out together a lot on the road. They were buddies. Um, and then after that, like Katie just didn't talk to anyone really after that. The, the thing is, to me, KD basically used the Warriors to, and one, to try and elevate himself past LeBron, get a couple cheap titles, which he knew, and I call them cheap because there was no way they were not going to win the championship. Like, I barely even watched the playoffs that first year. I was like, this is a joke. I'm not even going to watch it. There's no way they're going to lose. They only lost one game, and that was in the, that was game four of the finals, right? Mm-hmm. They were up real and lost, so they lost one game the entire postseason. Mm-hmm. If I'm, if I'm, so, so I think I almost felt like he used them. And I think in that third year when they realized he wasn't in it for the long haul, that they felt used. Is that at all true, you think? Um, a little or bit. Or my, or my, a little or my bit. I think, I think the Warriors <laughs> had a, a, a perspective of, look, hey, if he wants to come play for us, cool. You yeah. know, awesome. Like, we're already good. But, like, if he wants to come play for us, that's great. And, like, they never – they I think they always had the mindset of, like, you know, he's probably not going to finish his career with us. He's going to, this will be like a, a temporary thing and he'll help us win a couple titles and that'd be cool. And so like they look back on it now and they're like, you know, genuinely appreciative of the time they had with him because he helped elevate them. But, um, you know, they never, they, they definitely always looked at him as a little bit of a, a mercenary, you right. know, they never, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if your boss calls you and is like, Hey, I want to give you a $10,000 pay raise. You're like, Oh, really? Okay, cool. Thanks, man. I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, like that's basically that's basically what it was. Um, but you know, there I know for a fact that by the end of it, that within the franchise, there was a sense of like relief when he finally left. Yeah. It's like it just got really toxic for everyone and the media scrutiny. I mean, it was insane. Like you remember like it was all sports center. It's all anyone would talk about for months. And like, I think it just took a toll on everyone. And so by the time he left, even though they knew they weren't going to be as good, it was like, you know what? It wasn't like good riddance, but it was more just like, finally we can breathe, you know? Well, I hope, you know, one of the things is that, like I mentioned, they lost in seven to the Warriors and he goes to the Warriors. I honestly felt like, the next year they would have another shot at being the Warriors. And I, lo- I, mean, I love Durant as a player who doesn't. And I want to see him elevate his team and be the guy to win it, not jumping the bandwagon. So I really hope he wins it in Brooklyn. Like, I think that would be a great story. And I think if he did win it, he would be like, oh, this is what people were talking about. This feels so much more satisfying than what I did in Golden State. So we'll see how that works out. Very legit, too. I mean, I, I, yeah. I was a little skeptical. But, like, the thing about that team is they're so incredibly deep. They have the yeah. best bench in the league. I mean, they have three or four guys on that bench who would be starters on almost any other team. Um, and so he's in a really good situation there. I thought the Steve Nash hire was a great hire. Um, so it would be interesting. Yeah. I do want to ask you about this. So um, I have family in the Bay Area. <laughs> and, where? Uh, uh, Pleasant, Pleasant Hill is where my aunt lives. Okay. Um, and... She never cared about sports my entire life. And all of a sudden, she's a Warriors fan. She jumped on the bandwagon just firmly. So did my cousin, her daughter. Um, they became these massive Warrior fans. Never cared about sports ever. They clearly jumped on the bandwagon. But anyway, they were really upset when the team moved from Oakland 
to a- across the bay. They built that fancy new arena and they sold these uh, seat licenses and they had these massive ticket prices, right? All based on the fact that they were the mighty warriors. And then the first year the arena opens was the year everything imploded. When, well, Durant was gone and they had the Achilles anyway. And then Clay got injured and had, had the, the knee issue. So they obviously didn't go to any games because the team wasn't any good and it was way further away from them. But they would tell me stories of friends they knew who had purchased season tickets and spent all this money. And all of a sudden, this was like one of the worst teams in the league and they couldn't give their tickets away. Like they, they would literally have, you know, $500 tickets and they couldn't sell them for 150 bucks. And then they'd be like, Hey, you just want to go and just have them. So did you write about any of that type of? Thing? Did you hear people complaining about that? Well, there's a massive issue down there because I can't imagine people are very happy that they paid Lexus prices for a Pinto. <laughs> yeah. And the, the Warriors were kind of smart about how they went about all that in terms of um, it was basically impo- like once you sign up for a season ticket, it's impossible to get out. Like right. you're, you're locked in basically. Um, and so, yeah, there was definitely a lot of frustration. And then, you know, it's unfortunate <laughs> because, you know, the warrior that was part of the motivation for the warriors to like get the gang back together and really try to put everything into chasing a title this season. And then, you know, obviously not only is clay out, but like fans aren't even at the arena now. <laughs> like It's just, I mean, it's, it's been, uh, I bet those fans are happy though, because they don't have to pay for these tickets. <laughs> yeah. But I forget the details on that, but like they're, they're still locked in for coming season. So if they wanted to bail there, it's hard. But at least they don't have to pay for one year is what I'm saying. Right, <laughs> if, right. If, if, okay. Um, okay, last thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go. Uh, so Portland fans obviously love Damian Lillard, and there's so much to love, right? And he's, he's a great player, and he's gotten better. Like his career progression is so obvious when you look at his numbers. Uh, but And most people, I think, up here realize that Curry's better than Dame. Um, but there definitely is a sense of – well, Dame could have done the same thing in Golden State if you swapped him out. And I agree. You, you put Dame on that team with Durant and Clay, they win titles. You, be, you bring Steph up here, they maybe lose in the first round. I think that's true. But I do think Curry has been way better. For example, Dame's best season last year, shooting percentage-wise, you know, he shot 46% was a career high, 40% from three career high. Effective was 55 or something career high. Those rank like ninth or tenth on Curry's all-time list of, of, yeah. of, of numbers, right? So his best season would have been Curry's like eighth best season statistically in, in those three categories. I would also say Just, that Curry's probably better defensively, and I don't think Curry's very good defensively. Right. That's not too. Dame has gotten a lot better defensively, though, but yeah, that's another thing. Um, so do people in the Bay Area ever even think about Dame as a threat to Curry? <laughs> Does that ever even come up? Because I know up here there's a little bit of obsession, but I would imagine that down there they're like, oh, yeah, Dame's a nice point guard. Up Never there. heard not- that conversation yeah. down here exactly. ever. Yeah. It's kind of like a Yankees type situation where it's like you don't really worry about everyone else. It's like, <laughs> yeah, Steph, so we're good. Like, Steph's, I mean, I don't think it's an argument. Steph's the greatest shooter in NBA history. I don't even think it's close. Um, right. I mean, he has every record there is. Uh, he's, he's, I mean, that unanimous MVP season statistically was maybe the, and to me, maybe the most impressive statistical season in NBA history. Um, and look, I'm very familiar with Damian Lillard. I'm from Portland. I worked at the Oregonian when he was, you know, with the, you know, kind of coming into his own with the Blazers. Right. Um, went to a ton of games, followed him very closely. I, you know, he's obviously from Oakland. I've gone to events since I've worked at the Chronicle of in Oakland with him. Um, so I'm very familiar with Damian Lillard and I have a ton of respect for him. He is not Steph Curry. 
Um, There's only one Steph Curry. Um, And I understand that like Steph hasn't statistically been where you you want him to be lately um, because of the pieces around him, but you can't, he has a body of work at this point. That's undeniable. Now here's one, here's one point they, that Blazers fans make that, semi-legit is that Dame has at least gotten mediocre teams to the playoffs, especially the team after Aldridge left. And so there's a lot of eyeballs, I believe, watching to see what Curry does. Like last year, Curry was out, Clay was out, Durant had left, no big deal. But this year, Curry's healthy, he's playing. He's got some pieces around him. They're not as good, obviously, without Clay, but they should at least be a playoff team. So I think that a lot of Blazer fans are wondering if they can see what if Curry can elevate his team without Durant, without Clay, uh, the way that Damien was able to do without Aldridge and get his team to the playoffs. Do you think Steph has that in him to be that guy without Clay around him, without Durant around him, and get this team to the playoffs? Yeah, I still think the playoffs are definitely very much a possibility. I mean, they're two and two right now. And if you looked at the schedule entering the season, you would have said they would be two and two. I mean, they they started the season on the road against Brooklyn and Milwaukee, two of the best teams in the league. Right. Um, So no one expected them to win those games. Yes, they got completely embarrassed they lost those games by a combined 65 points but you know a loss is a loss a win is a win and so they're two and two right now things are trending in the right direction we saw a lot of growth from them on that road trip um they were a much better team against detroit yesterday than they were in the season opener against brooklyn and so i i, I have every reason to believe that this team is very much capable of making the playoffs um i'm not saying they're going to be a top four seed, but I think they can make the playoffs. And I think that would be an enormous accomplishment for Steph. And I think for them to do that, Steph would probably have to have an MVP caliber season, which I think he's very capable of. I've talked to people close to Steph recently who tell me that they, he is physically at his peak, which is incredible because he's 32 years old, which is mm-hmm. statistically, you know, a good five, six years past the heart of what should be an NBA player's prime. Um, he's stronger he's, now. That man strength. He's getting that man strength. He's getting stronger, physically. And then I don't know if you saw, he hit 105 straight threes the other day in practice, which was a personal (laughs) record. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone in human history has ever done that. So, um, yeah. (laughs) I don't even know if I can make 105 straight layups. Um, Okay. One more thing just popped into my head Uh, regarding this weekend. What do you think of the back to backs? I think that's cool. Do you think we're going to see more of those in the future? Like, even when things get back to normal? I mean, why make. Teams travel all over the place when you can, you know, have them play two games in a row in a different city and, and almost like baseball does. It's in, it'd be interesting. I mean, it's obviously a very unique thing to uh, to the pandemic. I mean, that's obviously why this is happening. But um, yeah, I, I think it could be one of those things that that is a positive takeaway from this season. Um, even once, hopefully, the pandemic subsides. Um, because um, I've never understood why it almost felt like they're like trying to make the travel needlessly brutal for everyone. Um, as someone who obviously wasn't playing the games, but I had to travel around with following the team. It was like, right. why do I have to go from Milwaukee to LA back to like my, right now? Like, I just, <laughs> it's uh, it doesn't even make sense. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's all about money. Right. And the reason the, travel schedule was crazy. It was because of the national TV schedule. So I do feel like ultimately if it makes more sense from an exposure standpoint and a money standpoint, that's go back to what they had before. They're going to do that. I think this is a very unique circumstance right now. Okay. So, um, so real quick, I'm going to close it out. 
but don't um, shut your thing off because it has to do some kind of uploading thing real quick. So okay. don't let's close. Y'all say goodbye. Let's say our partings and then just don't hang up though. Okay. <laughs> All right. Three, two. Well, thanks, Connor. That, I kept you for 35 minutes. A lot of great stuff about the Warriors. Appreciate it. Uh, predictions for this weekend. Um, it'd be interesting. I, I, Draymond's going to be back. I think the Warriors should be better with him. Um, I could see, I could see it being a one-on-one. I could see the Warriors stealing one and the Blazers stealing one. I know the Blazers have been all over the board. I get texts from my dad all the time about them and he's very confused by them. So it'd be interesting to see (laughs) what happens. They are confusing, but the whole NBA is confusing. I mean, I I mean, you look around the league, all these blowouts too. It's crazy. Yeah. People are like the Clippers the other day. Yes, they didn't have Kawhi Leonard, but to lose by 50, really? Anyway, thanks again for joining us, man. Uh, too bad I can't see you at the arena. In normal life, I'd be down there. We can go hang out. You can yeah. show me the town. Congrats for uh, getting on the beat, man. I'm, I'm happy for you. I, I think it's cool to see the homecoming. I know you were, <laughs> you know, it's a good one coming home. I was actually hanging out with your predecessor, Jamie Goldberg, you know, and before it became officially announced and heard oh, okay. that you were joining the beat, and I was happy for you. So. Congrats. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. All right. Thanks, man. And uh, have fun uh, this weekend covering your, your favorite team against the team you cover. <laughs> <laughs> I must address this Zach Collins situation. It was announced on Wednesday by the Blazers that Collins underwent a second surgery on his injured ankle, the one he fractured during the play in game at the NBA bubble. Uh, It's called a revision surgery, which means basically they're going back in to do some repair work on where they were before trying to repair his ankle. Originally, he was supposed to return toward the end of February. He had the first surgery on September 1. That means it was looking to be close to a five-month recovery period. If he has to go through the same recovery period following the second surgery, that would put him coming back in like April? Actually, no, May. So that's a long ways off. Now, the Blazers clearly were not going to rely on Zach Collins being healthy this season. That's why they brought in Robert Covington to play power forward. Carmelo Anthony is back. He's the backup power forward. They also signed Harry Giles, who's basically your third power forward. And then if needed, really, Inez Cantor can play some backup power forward as well and would see the court clearly before Harry Giles. So minutes could have been hard to come by for Collins, even if he returned in January. So what does this mean for him? Because he's in a contract year. Now, Clearly, if he doesn't play again this season, like last year, he missed what he only played in three games. So he hurt his shoulder and then came back for the bubble and played nine, got hurt in the ninth game. So he played basically 12 games last year. Um, if that's the same situation this year, if he comes back late, late May and plays for a little while and goes into the playoffs, uh, he will not have done much for his value. So in some ways, you can look at this and say, well, heck, how do they know what to do with him in the offseason? So this kind of works two different directions here. So one, he's not going to have a ton of value as a free agent. So if the Blazers tender him an offer, they make it so that if Collins rejects that offer, I think it's about $7.4 million, that Collins would become a restricted free agent, which means that any offer he were to receive from another team, the Blazers would have the chance to match it. 
chances are he would not receive a huge offer. I can't imagine someone's going to offer Zach Collins $10 million a year plus uh, to come play for them, having barely played over two seasons and still being a question mark in terms of what exactly he's going to be, a four or a five, and how good he could be. Now, he's shown great improvement. That's why last year was so demoralizing in a lot of ways because that was supposed to be the year where we found out if Zach Collins was a real deal or not. And and we didn't. And then we're not going to find out this year either, because whenever he comes back, unless there's a ton of injuries, where's he going to play? Like he's not going to get many minutes no matter what. So he's not going to be able to show how good he is or raise his value by playing 10 or 12 minutes a game. If he gets that when he comes back, so I think the Blazers are safe in the fact that no one's going to offer him a massive contract that they would have to match or lose him. Now, we all know how they feel about Zach Collins. They want him to succeed. They traded for him, for the rights to him, when he was taken 10th you know, overall in 2017. That's a high pick. I mean, he went three picks ahead of Donovan Mitchell. Like, Donovan Mitchell would have been redundant for this franchise because you have uh, McCollum and Lillard, but Donovan Mitchell is a phenom. Like, had they taken Donovan Mitchell, then you can either trade Mitchell or trade McCollum to get a legitimate star back and still have one or the other. Like that, that's a franchise changing, uh, decision there to go with Collins over someone like Mitchell, even if we don't know if Mitchell was even on their radar, but you know, they thought highly of Zach Collins. They believe Zach Collins could be a legitimate, you know, star, maybe not all star, maybe not superstar, but star level power forward. Uh, but right now we just have no clue. So if you know that the Blazers do love him and love his talent and like him as a person, then why wouldn't they issue that tender offer to him and said, Hey, we're going to bring you back for 7.4 million next season. Uh, it'll be another year for you to show us what you have uh, and then we'll talk about an extension if you can stay healthy and prove yourself. So I, I fully believe, and this is not based you know, on any type of keen insight or anything like that, but I do believe that Zach Collins will probably be back next season if he can recover from this injury. I do not think Portland is going to give up on him, nor do I think they should, especially if you can keep him, keep him around for another year for a measly 7.4. I mean, I think, I think they can pull that off. Anyway, tough situation there. Uh, you got to hope it works out for Zach Collins, but at least from a franchise standpoint, they had a plan, man. And as much as they will miss what I think they believe Zach Collins could become, I think that they will be just fine without him because they have enough players at that position to get the job done. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. I will have another one early next week to review the weekend series against the Warriors and look ahead to a two-game homestand starting with Chicago on Tuesday. Please be sure to leave a positive rating and subscribe if you haven't already to the Blazer Focus Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.